Hello. Thank you for downloading this Downtown Hope Sermon Podcast. We're a faith-based community in the city of Annapolis, Maryland, orienting our lives around Jesus and exist to see the people of our city, region, and world thrive with the hope found in his gospel. Now, please enjoy the sermon podcast. We're getting back into the gospel of Luke, and what, you know, I get the section in chapter 20 about whether we should page or not. But then I really got it, you know, we're going to go through the book of Revelation, and I don't know if it's next year or the year after that. I'm already penciled in for Revelation chapter 20, and here's verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. you got to be an accountant, I think, to understand that joke, but anyway. So yeah, we are back in the, uh, uh, going through our journey in the Gospel of Luke. And I mentioned when I was up here in August that I've determined that Luke is my favorite gospel. Um, and if it's not my favorite, it's definitely in the top four. Um, actually, my son Luke is here with us today, um, which is true. Um, I also noticed in my, last, noted, uh, in my last message that the Gospel of Luke's interesting because there's some very well-known stories, very well-known parables that are only found in Luke and found nowhere else. Uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan and the parable of the prodigal son, which David wouldn't let me preach on in the summer. <clears throat> but I, I don't hold any grudges. Um, However, what we're going to look at today, the account we're going to see today, is actually in all of the synoptic gospels, as they're called. It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I think that points to the significance of the verse. It's a familiar passage, uh, one that I think is brought out every April 15th, at least, as people are filing their income taxes. Um, I ran into a little bit of a problem putting my sermon together, though, because the, the teaching team here wanted me to winnow it down to one big idea or one big key concept. And I hope I've accomplished that. We'll see. Um, however, I was always taught that a good sermon is like a field goal attempt in football. Now, why is a good sermon like a field goal attempt, Steve? Three Because you always try to make three points, right? <clears throat> so that's what I plan on doing today. I'm going to, in turn, kind of give you an overview of the events that led to this confrontation between Jesus and the, uh, the ruling elders over this question of paying taxes. But here's a spoiler alert. As Christians, we are to pay our taxes, all right, from the Word of God. So I hope you didn't come here thinking you were going to get some kind of different uh, message. Um, but I'm going to share the three things that I learned um, from doing all this reading and putting this uh, thing together and hopefully tie it into the one big thing that we can take away from here and apply in our lives. So here we go. If you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. I want you to hear the, uh, the Word of God. And some of these words come directly to us from the lips of our Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ, uh, for our edification today. Luke chapter 20, verses 19 through 26. And the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay their hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something that he said, so as to deliver him authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. You can sit sit down. 
So this opening verse that we're looking at references a parable that Jesus had told earlier in chapter 20. So I think we got to go backwards a little ways before we can go forward. And I really want you to sense the context and the tension that's going on here. Um, Jesus and his disciples are in the city of, 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 of Jerusalem. Um, just a few days before, Jesus came into the city riding on a donkey. Um, uh, the, the thing that we celebrate and know is, is Palm Sunday. And he's fulfilling the messianic prophecy that's found in the book of Zechariah. And then very soon after that, Jesus goes in and he cleanses the temple of what he called the den of robbers who are selling goods and exchanging money in the t- temple courts. Then over the next couple days, we find Jesus in the temple actually teaching the people. And Luke 19, 47 states that all the people were hanging on every word that he said, which brings us now into chapter 20. So the early part of chapter 20 includes a series of, uh, of questions and answers that are volleyed back and forth here between Jesus and the religious elite of that day, who the Bible calls the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. <clears throat> and this group tried to put Jesus on what's called the horns of a dilemma. I don't know if you've ever heard that term before. But it's basically when a, a question is posed to you, and no matter which way you answer it, you're going to come out looking in a bad light. So this first question that they asked Jesus uh, dealt primarily probably either with his triumphal entry that he made into the city or the cleansing of the temple. And they asked him, tell us, by what authority do you do these things? And who is it that gave you this authority? So here, if Jesus answers that his authority came from man, then he's going to disappoint his followers and probably get him in trouble with the Roman authorities for disturbing the peace. But if he answers that his authority comes from God, then he's going to be charged with a much, much more serious Jewish charge, a Jewish crime of blasphemy. But you know what? It's never a good idea to try to win the, an argument with the divine. So Jesus is unique here, and, and it's, I think something we can learn from as well, and we're going to get more into that later, that what you should do when you face a question that's truly not really given in sincere uh, intention, okay? He asked the question right back to them, and he's putting his adversaries now on the horns of a dilemma. So Jesus says, okay, I'm going to ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, here's the horns of the dilemma. If we say it's from heaven, then he will say, why why didn't you believe him? But if we say from man, then all the people are going to stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they didn't know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, then neither will I tell you what, what authority I do these things. So if this was a tennis match, the volleys back and forth, Jesus just did an overhand smash, right? And he wins this point. And I'm sure it greatly infuriated these religious leaders. Um, but it's this parable that Jesus tells immediately afterwards that really puts these guys over the edge. You know, some parables of Jesus are very um, uh, hard to decipher, But this parable of the wicked tenants that he tells is definitely not one of those. Um, I want you to listen to this very succinct summary of the whole story of of redemptive history that Jesus gives in just a few sentences here. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant, and they also beat him and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. 
And yet he sent a third. This one they also wounded and cast out. The owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that that inheritance will be, may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they shouted, surely not. So this parable that Jesus gives is really no more than an updated um, version of an allegory that you can actually find in the book of the prophet Isaiah. And these religious men would have known this story and this allegory very well. The planter of the vineyard is God. The vineyard is the nation itself, the nation of Israel or God's chosen people, the Jews. Um, these tenants are the religious leaders of the day, sent by the owner or the Old Testament prophets, and the son, the beloved son, the heir to the vineyard, and soon to be owner of it all, is Jesus himself. So with this parable, Jesus actually answers that first question about which authority he did his things and which he acted. You know, in, in Isaiah, the prophet foretold of God's hedge of protection being removed and the city of Jerusalem getting destroyed and the people being taken into captivity due to their sin. In this parable, Jesus said the tenants, those who were entrusted to tend and take care of the vineyard, they are the ones that are going to be destroyed and the vineyard is going, the vineyard is going to be given to the care of others. Now you can see why these religious leaders reacted the way they did in the opening verse that we just read when it says that the scribes and the chiefs priests sought to lay their hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, which he did, but they feared the people. This was a real tipping point in this relationship, if you want to call it that, between Jesus and these religious leaders. They are so full of contempt and hate, they are now conspiring to have him murdered. That's what it means when it says salt to lay her hands on him. This hatred that they have drove these religious, these holy people, to actually plot with spies that's used in the, in, in the Bible here. And spies are people of low character, men of ill repute, men whose motive was to basically pretend to be somebody they weren't just to get information so that they in turn could give that information and then get paid for it later. You remember when the religious elite grumbled about the people that Jesus and his disciples would associate with. He called them tax collectors and sinners. Well, here they are, this group of religious men, actually conducting business with these same people. Well, the spies obviously didn't get the memo on what strategy to use when they're trying to trap Jesus because they tried the exact same thing the religious leaders did. Um, and, and by putting Jesus back on these horns of a dilemma, First, they try a little flattery by saying, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the word of God. Is it lawful for us to give pay, uh, tribute to Caesar or not? And I think it's ironic that in their attempt to be a bunch of liars, they actually proclaim God's honest truth about Jesus, that he truly does teach the way of God. So Jesus resorts to the same strategy that he used before, and he asks them a question. He says, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And unlike the situation concerning John the Baptist, these have, the an have an answer, but so does Jesus. 
So they say, well, Caesar's image is on that. And he says to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And finally, these religious leaders, along with their spies, did the smartest thing that's ever been attributed to them throughout the whole Bible when it says that they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him at what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. All right, so here's my field goal attempt. The three points or three things that I gleaned from this whole passage as I prepared today. And this happens every time I do a sermon that the very things I'm, I learn here are currently things I'm, I'm very much struggling with. So even if you guys don't take anything away, just know that I did. Okay? <clears throat> Point one, we should follow the model of Jesus when dealing with skeptics and even haters of the faith. You know, the longer I live, the more I agree with the words of Tom Cruise, which I thought I'd never say in a church service, <clears throat> um, in the movie Jerry Maguire, which is a movie I like, when he says, we live in a cynical world, a very cynical world. Here's some synonyms that I found for the word cynical. It means to be bitter and resentful, distorted, disenchanted, disillusioned, skeptical, doubtful, distrustvicious, unbelieving, mocking, satirical, sarcastic and scornful. And this definition I thought was appropriate, it was, it was the best one I could find, that being cynical means being doubtful as to whether something will happen or if it's even worthwhile. Doesn't that sound like the culture we find ourselves in today? I find that people feel this way on just about every subject matter, but it's especially true when it comes to matters of faith. Joey shares the sad statistic every week that over 80% of the people living around us and people we work with don't have any interest at all in church or organized religion. And some of that 80% are people that were actually brought up in the church. And they have no uh, interest because it has no bearing on them. They don't find it a worthwhile pursuit. You know, Jesus had skeptics and doubters and haters all around him. What approach did he take when he encountered these people? Well, the practical approach we see here in Luke 20, he, is, he has them questions. You know, this is a tactic that really disarms the one bringing the argument. It shows at the very least, anyway, that you have an interest in what the skeptic so firmly believes in. I, too, found Christ through the ministry of Young Life, back when I used to carry my scrolls underneath my arm. That's what we had for <clears throat> another guy who would understand that. But in Young Life, one of the key things that they really base the whole ministry on is this. People won't care what you have to say until they see how much you care about them. So Jesus was the very opposite of cynical in the way that he viewed and interacted with skeptics. Even when he was laying down hard truths like he was in the telling of that parable of the evil tenants, his heart was one of compassion for those who, who he was given the rebuke to. Jesus is the only person who could perfectly carry out the biblical command of speaking the truth in love. It's a trait that we so desperately need in today's world that is full of hate and strife. Brothers and sisters of Jesus, we must change our minds about the way we view skeptics and even haters of our faith. And I'm truly convinced that it will only come from a supernatural touch of God. You can listen to sermons, you can read books, you can even learn engaging dialogue techniques, and you can try real, real hard but we need to be changed from the inside out and having the love of God flood our hearts and our souls for those who live in unbelief. 
Point two is very connected to point one, and it's this. To identify and to work to eliminate pharisaical attitudes and actions. You know, in clear, if you read scripture at all, you'll see that Jesus took into one particular people group more than any other during his entire earthly ministry, and that was the religious elite of the day, or those that had been described as Pharisees or ruling elders. Why do you think that is? Well, if you examine the issues that Jesus found in the pronouncement of woes against this group of people that's detailed in Matthew 23, you'll see what they are. He states that they preach things they do not practice. They do good deeds just to be seen by others. They tithe, and yet they neglect the weightier matters of the law, such as justice and mercy and faithfulness. And they worry about their actions, but their hearts, they're full of greed, self-indulgence, hypocrisy, and lawlessness. I don't know about you, but this kind of describes where I am sometimes. You know, I think about the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, And there's times instead of beating my breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, my mind goes to all the good things that I do, and I compare myself with all those other sinners that are all around me. I think about the parable of the prodigal son, the one David wouldn't let me preach on in the summer, where I think just like the older brother in that story and wonder why others are receiving blessing and, and, and I'm not, based on all the things that I've done for the Father. Well, at least I'm not like the Pharisees chapter 20, you know, trying to trap the God of the universe with a series of questions, or do I? You know, the last two years have been extremely difficult for everybody in this room, and as I thought about it, this past year, it's probably been the worst of my life. I've had some real personal setbacks. I've had health issues. I got issues at work. I got issues in my immediate family. I got issues in my extended family. So I found myself questioning God about this. Now, there's nothing wrong with asking questions of God if your intentions and your attitudes are right. The Psalms are filled with these types of lamenting questions that we can direct towards our loving Father. However, as I thought about and contemplating the questions I have, I really determined deep down I was casting blame on God for my circumstances. I was really shaking my fist at him, questioning his love, questioning his goodness and his fairness. In essence, I was questioning the very character of God. Well, the good news is I've identified this attitude and actions, and through the loving Christian rebuke of my wife over here, some close Christian brothers who I have, and the conviction of the Holy Spirit fallen upon me, I have repented and I've received mercy and forgiveness as I work to eliminate this attitude from my life. Brothers and sisters in Jesus, the world need, and God surely doesn't want us to be pharisaical in our approach towards him and towards others. And we cannot, we can't change, we can only change if we in turn receive a supernatural touch from God. Listening to sermons, reading books, and trying real hard won't do it. We need to be changed from the inside out, having the love of God flood our hearts and our souls so that we can live our lives Pharisee free. This brings us to point three, and that is to contact your local certified public accountant for the preparation and filing of all your income taxes. <clears throat> Sorry, wrong presentation. That was for my little side job. However, I wholly hardly uh, agree to encourage you to do that because that's very good advice. However, my real point three is to render to God the things that are God's. 
If you didn't notice, um, this is actually the title I gave my sermon this morning. Uh, it's quoting from the lips of Jesus himself. Now, rendering is an interesting word. You don't hear that much, but you know, I try to use it as much as possible. And some of you out here I know do as well, because when I do uh, send a bill to a, a client for tax or accounting work, I say this is a bill for services rendered. And I mean that, A, I performed services, so I expect something in return. In my case, I want money, right? So this idea here of rendering to God, we are here to render and give back to him in return for what he's done for us. Before we really flesh that out, I do want to look at and examine the first part of what Jesus said when he said that we are to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. You know, he asked his questioners to produce a denarius, which was the most common coin that was used that day to pay your taxes. The image on that coin most likely was probably that of Tiberius Caesar, who ruled the Roman Empire until he died in 37 AD. But on the other side of the coin, there was this inscription, and it says, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus, Pontifex Maximus, which actually means the highest of the high priest. So I think there's an aspect here where Jesus is saying, hey, if this coin has Caesar's image on it and his inscription on it, it's his coin. Go ahead. He owns it. Give it back to him. But I think Jesus is actually making it, it has a veiled meaning here as well. It's important for us to remember. Remember, he's talking to very learned Jews and people who are very devout in their faith. And they would see this coin with that image and, those, uh, and that inscription on there, that would be blasphemous. And anybody claiming such titles as the Son of God, they're do nothing. And that is true. However, as I stated from the very outset, the Word of God, we are to obey as best we can the laws that have been put into uh, place by these civil magistrates. Because Romans 13, 1, uh, 1 and 2 say, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So it leads me to add a phrase to my last point, which I, whole, I hope is the one big thought for the day, okay? So my amended point three is render to God the things that are God's, remembering that everything is his. This piggybacks very much on what David brought last week in his sermon, which really summarizes the whole thing that we've been doing going through this uh, study through, uh, called Estuary. We own nothing. We are but stewards of what God has put in our care. Therefore, we owe everything back to him. I love the verse David used last week, Romans 12.1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. I selected this translation, the New King James, because I like that phrasing. After understanding the mercies of God towards us, Offering everything back to God is nothing more than a just reasonable service. One translation uses the adjective intelligent service. Basically, it only makes sense to offer everything we have and everything we are back to God. It's the smart thing to do. You know, Jesus said to render to Caesar the coin because it bears his image. My question for all of us today is, whose image do you bear? The Bible's clear that from the outset, from Genesis chapter 1, it says that God created man in his own image. The image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So anybody who's ever lived, this is true of every human being. 
This is why every life is important and every life has significance. But as followers of Jesus, we are called to seek a life seeking even to be a better image, a more clearer image, become more and more in the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4, 22-24 says this, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on a new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness in holiness. So worship team, you can come back up. I have some final words here. How do we put off our old self? Well, the word of God says we need to have our minds renewed. It only comes from a supernatural touch of God in our lives. Then we can start trying to do things like following the model of Jesus and viewing skeptics and haters of our faith Not as the enemy, but as people who bear the image of God. People who need to hear and people who need to see the gospel of Jesus Christ lived out by those claiming to be his followers. We need to rid ourselves of pharisaical attitudes, knowing that that's not what God wants, and it's not what the watching world needs to see. So we want to live our lives knowing and showing that we have been given the role of a steward responsible for the care of these things that God has so graciously given to us and acting out in obedience because we know ultimately that everything is his. Thank you.